Hey friends, Pastor Andrew here. Thanks for taking the time to listen in on our sermons here at Asheville First Church of the Nazarene. We post these even though they were preached in a specific time at a specific place to a certain community of people, hoping that God still might use them to speak to you wherever you are. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to 2 Kings. We're looking at 2 Kings chapter 22. Um, as I mentioned, you know, this is in, in the American culture. Do you know Canada have, has a different Thanksgiving day? Even Canada has a... So this is distinctly American uh, Thanksgiving Day. Uh, but the, the church and the church calendar, this is always the Sunday uh, of the reign of Christ, uh, the Christ the King Sunday, as I mentioned. And so uh, globally, we are thinking about the reality that Jesus Christ is King and what that means for our lives. And, and we are celebrating that as a global church. And there's, there's something really powerful about that. And, and you can tie it together to say we are grateful that Christ is king and that he reigns today. Amen? Amen. But we are going to be looking today in a story in king. We, we've been going through scripture narratively, and that continues too. We've been looking already in the prophets and looking to see like uh, things have not been going so well for Israel. And the prophets have been announcing that. We've been, uh, last week we looked at a powerful passage from Isaiah about uh, God uh, demands and desires justice and righteousness uh, from his people and from every human, what that means in our lives. And, and uh, Isaiah at that time was writing and preaching about 700 or so, 700 years before Christ or so. Uh, now we're, we're moving forward, we're going through narratively, and, and the period we're about to look at is in the, the mid-600s, uh, mid to early 600s before Christ, so about 600 years before Christ. And we're in the southern kingdom of Israel here. We're in the southern kingdom of Israel, and we're looking at some, uh, one king in particular named Josiah. Right? And Josiah, it's, uh, it's, it's probably for many of us a little-known story. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty powerful story, and so I'm going to read the story in entirety. You know, it's a longer scripture, I know that, um, about King Josiah. But let me just set the context a little bit for uh, entering into King Josiah. King Josiah was entering into a time that was, Israel definitely was not doing well. I mean, the prophets have been saying, you're not doing well. But here's, we're looking in the, the historical account. Uh, the kings have been messing up real bad. So uh, Josiah's grandfather was an evil king. His father was an evil king. And his son was an evil king, right? Uh, so you might say there's not so much hope for Josiah. We're going to see he was actually one of the Part of the scripture said he's the best king that ever was in Israel. See, how does that happen? But let me set the context for you. Because Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, was the most evil king ever in Israel's history. Um, his dad might have claimed the title, but his dad was only a king for a few years. His grandfather reigned for a long time. His grandfather, um, the scripture goes into detail before in chapter uh, 21, talking about how he started worshiping other gods. In fact, he started building altars to other gods in the temple to Yahweh, in God's temple, right? And so uh, that, that's like, you know, having an affair right in your own home, right, for God. It, it was idolatry to the max. Um, but that, that wasn't all. He, he, he started doing some of the detestable acts and worshiping the other gods. And one of those is that it, it, it says it 
that he made his son walk through fire, which means that he sacrificed his own son to one of the foreign gods. He was engaging in child sacrifice. This is Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh. So Manasseh was the most evil king. Uh, and in fact, Manasseh, they, God kind of points back to Manasseh and said, that's the turning point. There's no coming back from that. You're done. You're out of here. Because God even says uh, during Manasseh's time that the people of God were so evil, they were more evil than any of the other countries that God sent out of the promised land, right? In fact, uh, not only did he worship other gods, not only did he sacrifice his own son, um, but he also just was unjust and violent. Uh, the scripture says that Jerusalem was filled with innocent blood from Manasseh. All right, am I painting a dark enough picture for us? It was a bad, bad time with evil kings. All right, so this is the period of Josiah. Now enter into chapter 22. We're going to read all of chapter 22. It's kind of a shorter chapter, and we're going to jump to a portion in chapter 23 just to get the full picture here in verse 21. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, daughter of Adiah of Boscath. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, son of Azalah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to the high priest Hilkah and give him account of the entire sum of money that has been brought into the house of the Lord which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. Let it be given to the hands of the workers who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workers who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. That is, to the carpenters, to the builders, to the masons, and let them use it to buy timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly." The high priest Hilkah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And when Hilkah gave the book to Shaphan, he read it. Then Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and, and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workers who have oversight of the house of the Lord. And Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, The high priest Hilkah has given me a book. Shaphan then read it aloud to the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded the high priest Hilkah, Hakim, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and the king's servant, Isaiah, said, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all of Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our ancestors did not obey the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So the priest Hilkah, Akim, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to the prophetess Huldah for the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, son of Haras, keeper of the wardrobe. She resided in Jerusalem in the second quarter where they consulted her. 
And she declared to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, I will indeed bring disaster on this place and all of its inhabitants. All the words, words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have abandoned me and have made offerings to other gods, so that they have provoked me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But as to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And because you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Your eyes shall not see the, all the disaster that I will bring on this place. They took the message back to the king. Chapter 23, verse 21. The king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as prescribed in this book of the covenant. No such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel. Even during all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums, wizards, teraphim, idols, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, so that he established the words of the law that were written in the book that the priest Hilkiah found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We all love a good Reformation story, right? Even though it may be a little longer than we're used to. We all love a good story of people turning their lives around, making the needed changes. We love studying about it. We, we love studying about the Protestant Re Reformation. Uh, we, we love looking at the, the civil rights movement in America. We love looking about how things change in a positive and healthy and good way. Um, and we love to see it in other people. I love to hear, you know, how, much you, how many miles a week you run. I love to hear how much, you know, you're eating healthy and avoiding sweets. The problem is, we don't like to do it ourselves, right? Uh, I'm happy for you to cut out all sweets. I'm not going to be so happy and want to do it myself. I don't think many of us are about to cut out sweets in the meal we're about to take, partake in. Uh, but if you all cut out sweets, it'd be beneficial to me, so maybe that's all I'll preach on, right? Yeah. That was a joke. You can have some of the cake, too. But we love to see people change, other people change, but we often don't like it for ourselves, right? Uh, we often avoid changing. We often uh, avoid reforming ourselves. Why? Because it's hard. Because it's uncomfortable. Because it makes us admit we're not doing right now and we need to change our ways. 
This morning, uh, we're looking at a, a really powerful story of Reformation, considering the context in First, uh, Second Kings chapter 22. I just want to warn you, though, I'm going to bring it home to each and every one of us to ask us to uh, examine ourselves. Perhaps we might, many of us need to reform and to change and to grow in a different way this morning. Um, and so as we look at the story of King Josiah, it's going to be coming back on us. Um, But we might look at this story and we might hear the context and say, how did this happen? Have you ever been there in your life and something happened and it just made you stop and say, how did I get here? Um, Maybe maybe it was something you did really wrong. Uh, Maybe you went to the doctor and the doctor gave you that moment and said, how did you get here? Uh, Maybe it was in a marriage or maybe it was at work, fill in the blank. We Probably all of us have gotten to some point and say, how did I get here? Israel was in that, that point, and we might ask the same, how in the world did God's people, who he brought out of the land of Egypt, who he, he's provided for and acted so powerfully for, for years and years and generation after generation, and now here we are, and not only have they been worshiping other gods, not only do they have evil kings, they don't even remember the law that they were meant to follow. They, they, we find out that they haven't been doing the Passover, which was, I mean, the ritual that the people of God are supposed to do. They haven't even been doing that since the time of Judges, generations ago. What is going on? Not only that, they've been suffering injustice. And I mean, just the list goes, how do you get here? You know, as we even look through Scripture, we see hints of it, but even when we're going through uh, Saul and King David and Solomon, we don't realize that they're actually not worshiping God like they're supposed to. We don't realize that the words of God are drifting farther and farther away. You read Solomon, maybe you should realize that because he's not obeying the law at all. And so you might say, well, of course he's not listening to it. But how did this happen? If I may say to you, I think what happened in Israel's story as you read Scripture is uh, what happens to any of us when we have that, how did this happen in our own life? It's a slow process. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, You don't wake up one morning and you're not 30 pounds heavier, right, immediately. It happens slowly, right? Um, And what happens slowly in Israel is not that they just forgot, It's that their attention, what they focused on, started to drift from God to the things of this world. And so this happens very early out of the time of Judges. They they started looking to the other nations and they wanted a king like other nations. They they started looking at other nations. They wanted a a bigger military and and fortified cities. And and they started looking at the, the power and the culture of this world, they started looking at the other gods of this world, and their attention got pulled from God. So that so, when we look at this period of just a few hundred years after King David, we see that they have gone so far off track. This doesn't happen in our world today, does it? This doesn't happen in our lives. I think it does. You know, King Josiah, it sounds like a weird story. 
believe me, you could hear me. I, I don't pronounce those names on a daily basis, right? Um, seems like a culture so far removed, and yet it speaks to us even as the people of God, as the church today. I want to talk to us individually, but I think this story uh, relates to us as the church, as the people of God to say, can we get off track this easily? Has this happened? I don't want to be an alarmist. I'm not an alarmist. I don't think we're in a worse time than any other time uh, in the church of the world. I mean, there's been far worse times, right? Uh, So I'm not an alarmist, but I just want to look at the story and say, is there anything we can pick up in our church culture and our Christian lives today that was going on then? I, I think it's true. I think there are ways. Because I see the church time and time again, we take our focus off of Christ. We take our focus off the core principles of the faith, what was happening in Israel at the time, and we get focused on what's going on in the world. We get focused on the powers and the leaders and the politics and the economies and cultures of this world. And slowly, not all at once, we drift off course. Like Israel, they were the people of God in name only. And God says, you're worse than all the other countries that I cast to the side to put you in the promised land. Now worry that the propensity of the church is to be the, the people of God in name only. And yet if you looked like against us, against the world, you'd, you'd hardly notice any difference, right? I, I don't think, uh, you know, one of the ways we've tried to address this, I think, is uh, the church in the last, you know, 30, 40 years has engaged in what has been termed the culture wars. Uh, and the culture wars, you might say, well, that's, uh, I think some have said that's the, the way that we're going to get back our identity. And really, I think that's actually the problem we've run into. Because the culture wars are all about trying to get kind of a watered-down Christian morality in, in the power structure of the world today and in our government and in our politics and everything like that, that we're trying to make other people kind of live by our standards. And actually, the problem is that it's watering down the church, I believe, that it's taking our focus on ourselves being the people of God, and we want to fight in the world's culture, Right? We, we've stopped trying to be the people of God ourselves, and we've started looking about, oh, we want to be the foremost power, cultural power at least, in the world. And here, here's my kind of thesis about what went wrong in Israel. Yeah, they took their attention off, but notice basically the faith died out in Israel. You think, how, how is that possible? How does the faith die out in Israel? Notice that the faith died out in Israel not by oppression, not by anyone forcing them, not in anybody condemning them. How did the faith die out in Israel? It was through that gradual process of prosperity and trying to become more powerful like other nations. That's how the faith died out. Faith in the church today does not die out when people are mean to us when people look down on us, and historically when people oppress the church. The faith never dies out under oppression. It never dies out when we're not the... In fact, when we look historically, the faith is at the worst in the church. The faith dies out when the church is in the powerful seat in culture. 
when the church is trying to play the games of culture and power in the world, faith dies out, as we see in Israel. Am I being clear? I know we're talking about some high things, but when the church, when we're concerned about playing the world's game, when we're concerned about making sure that no one looks down on us, we get upset that people aren't saying Merry Christmas anymore. Our gaze is on the wrong thing. We're playing the world's games, and that's when faith dies out. And I think we wonder, why aren't people coming to church like they used to? Why is that? And I, because we have stopped being concerned with us being the people of God, and we've worried about playing the world's games. And that's when faith dies out, and that's what we saw in Israel. They were playing the world's games. They were trying to fight on the world stage. And that's the wrong, that's not our calling as the people of God. And so this plays out in, in ways. And I think it plays out in very similar ways that we can see for Israel during that time. And so one of the ways it played out is they totally forgot about Scripture, right? Uh, scripture, uh, they had to write down the, the words of the law because, you know, they were, they were orally transmitted and, and given, but the law especially, and we see this passage here, that uh, the words were written down. It was probably a passage from Deuteronomy, as best we can tell. Um, and so we forget that, we realize they forgot about Scripture. And I think that happens today. I hear a lot about Scripture. The Bible's the most printed book around. But you know what I hear a lot about Scripture is we fight a lot about <sighs> translations. We fight a lot about uh, nooks and crannies and interpretations of this and that. And you know what I don't see people doing a lot of times is living out the core principles that are pointed to in the faith and the scriptures, right? Scripture's very clear. In fact, we as Christians have it really easy. Our Lord and Savior, he basically said, this is, I'll sum up the law for you in two sentences, right? He showed us the core principles, and yet we use scripture so many times just to beat people up or to prove our point, and we've stopped letting scripture speak to me and us. I'm being clear. So we can have all the scripture around. Maybe it's not in the back room that we have to go find, and yet we don't use it. We don't allow it to point us to the core principles of the faith, right? But we also see uh, in Israel during this time, the rituals of the faith lacked, that they weren't carrying out the, the Passover ritual, that they weren't worshiping like they should have done. And I think we see that today as well. You know, I mentioned the church attendance is on the decline. That's not news to any of us, you know. The thing I'm really concerned about is that I meet devout Christians, people that consider themselves devout Christians, and they, and they don't really understand the need for being a part of a church, for, for being committed to a church body. I'm, I'm not here to say church is going to save you. Just because, because something's in the garage does not make it a car, right? Get that? You might have to think about that. <laughs> Right? Just because something's in the garage doesn't make it a car. Just because you're in the church doesn't mean you're a Christian uh, or you, you're living right. I'm not saying that. that uh, coming to church every Sunday, and I'm not a stickler. You better be here. Blah, blah, blah. Don't hear me. I, I don't like to beat people over the head with coming to church. But what I'm saying is I, I meet folks that, I mean, they are very serious about, you know. But then on the next sentence, they're just not really worried about being a part of a church. My friends, I, I hate to put it blunt. You're making that up. The Orthodox faith has always said that salvation is through Christ alone, but there is no salvation apart of the body of Christ. 
How can you be saved in Christ if you are not connected to the body of Christ? You are baptized into the body of Christ. And if you're not a part of that body, you're not a part of Christ, right? Um, and that, that is what the church has held from the beginning. So I'm concerned about we're letting go of the rituals because we have this extreme individualism and we have this extreme consumerism that the church doesn't really reflect exactly what I want from it. So I'll have my church at home. That's not good. That's connected to what we're seeing in Israel, letting the rituals and the commitment to worshiping God go. All right? So these things are happening. So what can we see in, in the Josiah's reform that can apply to help us today? Again, I'm not trying to be alarmist. I'm not trying to say it's all doom and gloom. I think every generation can find things to reform, and I think our church has plenty to reform too as well. What are the things in Josiah's story in chapter 22 that we can see to help us in our world today. Well, the first thing we can see to help us is that Josiah, he didn't, what, what did he do? He tore his clothes and he repented, right? What Josiah didn't say is, oh, we need to, we need to go get the morality police and we need to go make sure everyone's following this letter. No. He said, oh my goodness, I, I'm in trouble. The people of God are in trouble. He heard the words of scripture and he repented. He had a penitent heart. Talk about a reformation. The most, one of the most important things that this shows us is that Josiah himself had a sensitive heart to the word of God to allow it to pierce him. He realized the reform for himself, not first for other people. He didn't cast the stones at anybody. He tore his clothes and he said he needed to change, even though we already heard that he lived an upright life. Notice, uh, and so he sent the high priest. I know it was names, weird names. Maybe it was hard to follow for us, but he sent the high priest to a prophet in town. Did you notice, this is just a side note, did you notice that prophet was a, a woman? Uh, this is, uh, she was the prophet for the people that the king's sending the high priest to speak to, and it was a woman, a prophetess, Hulda, all right? I, I just want to give a shout out. We, the Church of the Nazarene, fully believe in the equality between genders and quality, male and female, and here's an example of a woman used by the word of God as a prophetess in the church. Even in a severely patriarchal society, which Israel was, here we see God using, and we believe that here in the, in the church of the Nazarene. Uh, but he hears and receives the word uh, from Huldah and says, God has seen your penitent and, and humble heart, and he will bless you for it. Secondly, though, what we can pick out in Josiah, I think it will help us today, is that Josiah didn't try to go through the law and, and enact every single, he returned to the core principles. He returned, returned to the core of the law. He kept the first things first, right? He enacted Passover. He, he, he lived it out himself. And we see that most clearly at the end of the reading we did today. Did you notice what it said? That he loved the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his might. That's why we are pretty sure that he found a passage of Deuteronomy because it's in Deuteronomy, we talked about this a number of weeks ago, the Shema, the most important command in all of the Old Testament, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, right? With all of your might, we are to love the Lord God. And that's what Josiah led in. And that's why he was the greatest king ever to live because 
not because he made Israel follow every law. He got to the core principle. And that core principle is what God wanted from his people all along, for us to love him with everything we had. All right. If we take a step back, though, and say, well, that's good. But none of that would have happened without a righteous king. The real problem in the stories is that Israel had been getting these evil kings that were leading them the wrong way. And that finally they had a righteous king that led them, that empowered them to return to the Lord. And the reality for us today, as we as the church, the global church, celebrate Christ the King Sunday, it should be a reminder of us of why we need a righteous and just king in our lives. That we are powerless to do a reformation and a transformation in our lives. That just like Israel needed Josiah for this time to lead in a reformation in their lives, we too need a leader and a king. This is why Israel would, would begin to realize they had the, the prophetic hopes of the Messiah to say, we can't do it on ourselves. We have this problem. We have this sin, and, and this cycle of sin has caught us up, and we finally need a king, a leader, a Messiah. Josiah was a forerunner to show, show them that they needed it, but we, we can't have one that dies. We need a king that reigns forever and ever, and that will provide justice and righteousness and help us change. My friends, that is what we have in Jesus Christ that we have the righteous and just king that can lead us and show us and empower us to live a transformed, reformed life as God wants us to live. That is why Jesus came into this world not to beam us up out of here, to be our king, to be that leader in our lives presently, to empower us to change here and now, just like happened with King Josiah and the Israelites. And so the question for us this morning is that, is Christ king in our lives? Do we live that out? Do we believe that? Do we acknowledge that we need it? You might say, Pastor, that king language, that's so antiquated. That's not too democratic, right? Um, that's not too egalitarian, right? Uh, that, that, is God just making a power play, wanting to be our king? I don't know if I want a king. Well, I, I will say it is a, a metaphor because we, Scripture comes from us from the times of kings and kingdoms, right? Even the language we use of Lord and Savior was political language of the day. That's what Caesar called himself. And so the early church said, no, Jesus is Lord. No, Jesus is the Savior. And they heard that correctly. So it's all situated. But I want to tell us this morning as we think about Christ the King, it's actually the best news in the world. And I think this is what the world really doesn't get when we talk about Christ the King because it's unlike any other king. And in fact, that's why that term may, it fits, but it doesn't. Because this king, our king, Christ the king, came into the world not 
you think Zeus comes down on earth, not as a fully formed guy with, you know, muscles and lightning bolts in his hand. God came in, as we're about to celebrate the world, as a little vulnerable baby. He wasn't born into a golden throne room. He was born into a humble manger. This person we call king in the church was born into a very small village no one had ever heard of. He grew up in poverty. He was on the run. He was a a refugee. He had to go down to Egypt. This person we call king, nobody knew about. He was a basic tradesman, carpenter. He was from what some people said was an illegitimate child, right? They didn't know where he came from. This person we call king never wrote a book. He never built a temple to himself. In fact, he only had 12 little followers. He taught. He was wise, but he didn't go into the prestigious Jewish schools. People attacked him. People belittled him. They even called him the devil. And did he ever try to run for office? Did he ever try to take over things? In fact, he healed people. He helped people. He hung out with all the wrong people. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. Can you believe that? No respecting Jewish person would do that. What's more, he got accused of things he didn't do. He got accused of blasphemy and others. He suffered grave injustice at the hands of the religious system and the political system. He was mocked. He was slapped. He was betrayed. He suffered and was tortured. At the end of his life, he died as an enemy of the state and as a blasphemer far from God. He lived a life none of us would ever want to live. That is the person who we call king. Not just king of my heart, not just king of one country or one people. That is the person we call king of all creation, Lord of all. It's actually the most beautiful thing I can think of. And sometimes we fast forward through the beauty of it, I think, because we just say, oh, yeah, yeah, he was God in the flesh. He was just saying, oh, I got to get through, you know, I got to get through to get back home. No, because what we believe is that life, that way, that actually reveals to us who God really is. Jesus is the revelation of God. So all that stuff wasn't fake. It wasn't just pretending. It wasn't just, I got to do this before I get back up to my throne. That person on the cross giving himself for us was actually revealing to us who God is. That he would suffer and serve and hang out with the wrong people out of love for us. And so when I hear Christ is King, That sounds like the most beautiful, amazing irony in the world. That the one the world trampled on, the one that was forgotten, the one that was tortured, 
is now ruler of all. That's what it means for us to call Christ the King. And so for us this morning, I just want to ask us, will we look to Christ and say that is who the King really is? Will we allow Him to reform our lives? For, for those of us that come to church this morning, this message is really for us to reform and get back to the basics. And the basics is simply the declaration that Christ is king. The basics is really to say, stop, stop, you know, don't worry about the stuff on the peripheral. Don't. Our claim is Christ is king. That is the reform that the church needs today to live as if Christ is king. And it's not just to say in a spiritual sense, we believe that we are living out the reign of Christ in the church. And so it does take a step of faith for us to say, I believe that Jesus is king. And to, to have that faith, we all need to make that personal decision to say, I believe that Jesus is king. But the larger issue for us is not just to stop at that step of faith to say, I believe Jesus is king. He is king in my life and he's king of all creation but then to live it out. That's when Jesus really is king of our lives. It's not about just a word. It's not just about a phrase. It's not just about saying a prayer. It is about actually living it out that Christ is really king over my life because I am living out his commandments, what he wants to see in me. And the reality is, is he empowers us to do it. It's only because of who he is it's only because he is king that we can change and transform, and that's good news. So my friends, as we look at King Josiah, let us remember the most important thing for a reformation in our lives is a sensitive heart, a heart that is willing to turn, a heart that is willing to say yes and to choose another way and allow Christ work in us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and our goodness, for your grace and your goodness in our lives, Lord, that you came as king among us, a different type of king, a king that sometimes the world does not recognize at all, but we recognize it and we see it. And so, Lord, may you come among us. May you speak to our hearts and see what it means to follow you, for you to be king in our lives. May this time of communion be a means for us, for your presence and your grace in our lives. May you give us the strength to change and to come back to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As our servers come down and as we prepare to respond and and take communion and, and take a time of prayer. I'd, I'd invite you, everyone's welcome down to communion. You don't have to be a member of our church for taking communion. All that we ask is you declare within your own life, you make the decision to believe that Christ is king. That he is not only king in, in your life, that he is king of all. And then come receive the bread and the cup. And in doing so, we, re, we believe that you are receiving the grace and the love of Christ himself.
the old phrase, uh, the older phrase for communion was Eucharist, the Greek word Eucharist. And really the literal meaning of Eucharist is thanksgiving, giving of thanks. This truly is the meal of giving thanks. And so as you come down, what I just invite you, not only are we declaring that Christ is king, but that we are thankful that Christ is king, that we are thankful that Christ wasn't like a king of this world. He didn't use his power for himself, but he's a different type of king. As you're coming down, I, I just hope that this is the true Thanksgiving meal for us. Yeah, we're about to celebrate, as our culture does. But this really is the meal where the church celebrates where it says Christ is the king, and we are so grateful for that. We'd be lost without it. So with grateful hearts, may we partake this morning. On the night our Lord was betrayed, after giving thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, broken for you. Take, eat, whenever you do, in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you and for the forgiveness of sins. Take, drink, whenever you do, in remembrance of me. When you're ready, come declare that Christ is king and come in gratitude of that reality. Amen. Church, family, would you stand with me? May you be the people that recognize Jesus as Lord and King of all. May you be the people that don't just recognize it, but you live it. And may we go throughout this week and throughout our lives to be the thankful people that Christ is King. Thanks for listening in today. I hope God continues to speak to you in the days to come and that you find whatever is the next step for you in your life. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website at ashnaz.org or feel free to stop by the church anytime. We'd love to see you. God bless.